This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we get started. In today's episode, we discuss scenes of graphic violence, which may be distressing for some listeners. Hey, Jane Lee here, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land. And this is The Full Story. I don't think there's a single Queenslander today whose heart isn't broken. It is so sad. It is so devastating. It's been a month since two police officers and a bystander were ambushed and killed in an attack at a remote property in a town 300 kilometres west of Brisbane. Hours later, the three people responsible, Gareth, Nathaniel and Stacey Train, were killed in a firefight with police. Now their daughter, Madeline Train, has spoken with Guardian reporter Nino Bucci about what may have led to this sudden act of violence. She had wanted to share what she knew of these people and give a bit of a greater sense of of their lives and I guess almost balance the ledger a little bit between what was already out there and sort of give it a bit more real life. All three of them were parental figures for me in different ways. Today, Madeline Train reckons with her parents' conspiratorial beliefs, their actions that day and her own grief. It's Wednesday, the 25th of January. So, Nino, what do we know about what happened on December 12th? About 4.30 that afternoon, four police officers were sent to a remote property in Weambilla, which is about 300 kilometres west of Brisbane. And they were looking for a man who had been reported missing in New South Wales, a guy called Nathaniel Train. He also had a warrant out for his arrest, we discovered sometime later. And when they arrived, those four police, you know, jumped the fence right at the front of the property and started heading up to the driveway of the house. And they were ambushed by Nathaniel, his brother Gareth, and Gareth's wife, Stacey. Two young constables, Matthew Arnold and Rachel McCrow, were shot dead. A neighbour came to the property too at that time, and he was also shot dead. Their colleagues took cover, one of them, Keely Bruff, hitting grass as the trains lit a grass fire to try and lead the officer out of her hiding place. Keely Bruff managed to escape, and along with her other colleague, they both had non-life-threatening injuries. They've then called for, for backup. And, you know, heavily armed police have kind of come from Brisbane and surrounded the property. By 10.30 that night, Gareth, Nathaniel and Stacey were shot dead. To lose two officers in one incident is absolutely devastating. This event is the largest loss of life, police life, we have suffered in a single incident in many years. What do we know about Gareth, Stacey and Nathaniel Train, the people at the centre of all of this? Yeah, so I actually spoke to Stacey and Nathaniel's daughter, Madeline. All right, hold on. I'm just trying to work out how I can... There you go. All right. Excellent. 
we were able to sort of talk to her on the phone and get her thinking about, I suppose, her upbringing. So I think, and again, like I know this stuff is probably not super pleasant to talk about, but I'm just hoping. You know, her gradual kind of estrangement from Nathaniel and Stacey uh, and also Gareth who, you know, along with Nathaniel, she considered both those men to be father figures to her. All three of them were parental figures for me in different ways. Nathaniel was more like an uncle than a dad. Like he tried, Stacey and Nathaniel had us so young that they still were figuring out who they were. They had actually become a couple after Stacey was married to Nathaniel, who she had two kids to. Everyone else thinks it's weird, but if you if that's what your parents did, it's not weird. It wasn't weird for me. She says Nathaniel and Gareth grew up in a very religious household, but Madeline says all three of the people she calls her parents had become estranged from their extended families because they believed they'd been exposed to a pedophile while they were children. I, I didn't really understand the scale of what they experienced as children because they never unpacked it on us. No allegations against any individual were ever proven, Madeline said. And we understand that the individual she's referring to has since died. But she believes the trauma of that upbringing weighed heavily on the three people she considered to be her parents. They um, they talked to each other about it and I think they talked to some medical professionals, but they never told us what they did because they always just taught us how to process our own trauma, not theirs. I mean, it sounds like despite some pretty difficult circumstances, they had a pretty good relationship as, as she was growing up. When did that relationship start to change for Madeline? She says that basically it was something that she'd started to realise as she became a teenager. She lived at boarding school for part of this time and certainly by the time she'd moved out of home and, and into her early 20s, she was getting a sense that all three of those people had some fairly serious conspiratorial beliefs I know he spent a lot of time on the internet because he would send me links to shit and I'd go, that's a bit weird. Even though he was sending these links, I still think that he was mentally sound, right? Because Gary's bottom life really was, (laughs) he would say dumb shit to spark conversation. (laughs) And I know that sounds stupid, but what Gary would say is the most extreme thing he could, whether he believed it or not, to get people to talk. Mm. For example, they were all heavily religious people. They grew up in a church that had been actually founded by Gareth and Nathaniel's father and they sort of maintained that belief in in Christianity and also some of the, the principles that they'd been taught about things, you know, such as the apocalypse. They were always spiritually minded and they believed that, like, we were literally COVID was the end of the world. I think it's fairly clear that they had a mindset or a mentality prior to the pandemic uh, that made them more likely to fall into this belief system or this this trap, I guess you could call it. Like you watch one weird video on YouTube and then the algorithm of social media sends you down a weird fucking Alice in Wonderland trip where you're watching heaps of weird shit and that's all it feeds you. It's clear that the pandemic to them was seen as a sign that the world was going to end, that, you know, that this was, a, I guess, an apocalyptic reckoning that was coming down upon them. He spent a lot of time on the internet and researching. They knew normally it was all normal, but with COVID it wasn't. It wouldn't be uncommon to get a call from them and it wouldn't even be, you know, how are you going? It would be straight into some sort of conspiracy theory about COVID, about its origins, about vaccination or something like that, and, and certainly... You know, by that time, by early 2020, when the pandemic was really taking hold in Australia, 
she needed to be very mindful of the communication she was having with them. He sent me YouTube stuff, yeah, like repeatedly would send me weird links and I didn't even really, look, I knew, I opened enough to go, that's fucking weird and I'd say that's weird to Gary and Gary really, sometimes I just wouldn't say anything. Um, they just contacted me too much about shit that I didn't want to hear about. Yeah. Like COVID, COVID shit that I thought was not accurate. Um, but it was not like, hey, how are you? It was like, here's this COVID conspiracy theory, boom. Hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that time. Nathaniel and Stacey Train were both, you know, working in fairly senior positions in schools in Queensland and New South Wales. In 2020, Nathaniel had moved to Walgett in outback New South Wales where he was the principal at a school there. But then he suffered a heart attack at school, a really serious heart attack. This was before he'd taken a COVID vaccination or anything similar. But after that, he became even more... I suppose, vehemently opposed to the vaccine. The heart attack was from stress. He would drink yeah. so much coffee and he'd forget to eat because he was working so hard and he would hardly sleep because he, all he wanted to do was do his job really fucking well. And at the same time, the Queensland Education Department was requiring all of its teachers to be vaccinated and Stacey had basically said that wasn't going to happen and she left her job at the end of 2021. So instead of their beliefs being something that they could talk to their family members and each other about something that maybe guided the way that they lived their lives and who they were friends with, all of a sudden it started affecting their work. He didn't even want to take the medication, but he was forced to and he didn't want to be forced to have a vaccination that could aggravate any heart conditions. After his heart attack, Nathaniel left his job and he decided, Madeline said, to basically go bush to rediscover God. He was reconnecting with God. Um, in nature. That's why he was living that way. And I think that Stacey leaving her own job at the end of 2021 because of the vaccination mandates were both fairly important milestones in terms of the the radicalisation of these three. So Madeline and the rest of the Train family are recognising that the three are turning more and more towards conspiracy theories and Nathaniel's becoming harder to contact because he moved deep into the bush. What happened next? Eventually, Nathaniel's wife actually reports him missing on 4 December 2022. She's worried that the last conversation they had was taken out of context. She hasn't seen him for a year. They asked to be left alone multiple times. They told Vanessa, don't report him missing. He doesn't want to see you. Leave him alone. Stacey told Madeline that Nathaniel was planning on blowing the whistle on matters within the New South Wales Education Department that involved the New South Wales Police and that he'd spoken to a reporter and to Mark Latham, the Upper House MP. Maddie, you should know that Nathaniel mentioned he was going to blow the whistle on high-up corruption within the New South Wales Education Department with connections to the New South Wales Police Organised Crime Syndicate and Fixated Burston Branch. Is now understanding Nathaniel was going to talk to a reporter with the ABC and Mark Latham giving them And then the next day at 6.34pm on 12 December, Madeline had the last contact she'd ever have with the three people she considered her parents. Would you be comfortable um, maybe reading the last sort of text that you had from from Gareth and from Nathaniel and and I'm not sure if you had any from Stacey? The 12th at 6.34, 12th of December, Madeline and Stacey were to kill us. Gareth texted her that people had been sent to kill us. 
I said, what does that mean, Gary? Are you and Stacey right? I love you both. Um, Gary didn't reply. So by the time Madeline had received this message, the trio had already shot dead Constables Matthew Arnold and Rachel McCrow and their neighbour Alan Dare. And Gary would have said that because we all knew we loved each other and uh, that wasn't what needed to be said. So Nina, how does your interview with Madeline change what we know about the shooting and why it happened? Before I'd spoken to Madeline, it was clear that we were dealing with people that were really a long way down this rabbit hole that had really deeply held conspiratorial beliefs that most people would consider quite radical. But I guess what she's done is sort of paint in the finer details and really help us understand what they were thinking at that particular time. Next. What are police doing to combat the threat of violent extremism in Australia? These kind of violent attacks against police are rare in Australia. So in the days that followed the shooting, you were one of the reporters at The Guardian looking for anything that could help explain why this happened. What did you find? There was, you know, YouTube videos which have since been deleted in which Gareth says, you know, they came to kill us and we killed them. If you don't defend yourself against these devils and demons, you're a coward. We found that Gareth had posted at least 12 videos online in the six weeks prior to the attack, kind of railing against police, sometimes by name. Uh, At least two of these videos featured the Director General of the Intelligence Agency, ASIO, Mike Burgess. Uh, And Gareth also regularly wrote, sort of anti-government and anti-police messages on other websites that were kind of often interwoven with conspiracy theories, including that the Port Arthur massacre was a false flag attack. But there was not one clear sort of explanation that emerged and not one kind of conspiracy theory that rationalised why they'd set upon these officers. There's going to be an inquest into their deaths, which might go into more detail about all this, but we might also never know exactly why it happened. Given that there was all of this material available online that indicated how deep their conspiratorial thinking was, should all of this material have put them on the radar of the authorities earlier? What we've come to understand is that many of Gareth's online activities only came to the attention of authorities after the shooting. There was a former long-serving national security official that a colleague of mine, Ben Smee, spoke to who basically said that He was utterly baffled that the other posts on publicly available websites were not on the radar of authorities. And he was speaking even before that YouTube sort of channel was discovered. And he told Ben that, you know, I suspect they were not really looking at these sites or if they were, they didn't understand what they were seeing. That former official also said that Gareth's posting and his narrative arc seemed to exceed the threshold of where he'd be considered a threat. Outside of their online activity, we also know that Nathaniel had a warrant out for his arrest and that warrant had been taken out after he managed to get his way into Queensland from New South Wales despite not passing the COVID-19 vaccination requirements and that he'd dumped a number of firearms and also left his car at a river crossing when he did that. We also know that his gun licence was suspended after that, but Queensland Police 
maintained that there were no red flags to indicate that the officers who visited the property that day on 12 December were in any danger. It's interesting that you say there were no red flags to Queensland police because you've just sort of outlined quite a number of pretty disturbing details that that maybe should have been red flags. Yeah, I mean, I guess what we've got to remember here is that, you know, this full picture has emerged very much after the fact Mm. and policing agencies are very different to intelligence agencies. We don't know whether ASIO had started a file on any of these guys. We don't know whether... You know, that file had been started but hadn't got to a point where they felt they needed to tell, you know, policing organisations about it. So that you need to kind of keep in mind here that local police, like the those who responded to this job, are not necessarily holding all intelligence that's ever been gathered about the people they're about to visit. The question, I guess, is not necessarily mm. whether more should have been known but what was known. ASIO has warned of the dangers of Australians being exposed to an echo chamber of conspiracy theories and extremist thinking during the pandemic, particularly in relation to far-right extremism. But how is this threat actually being treated by local police on the ground? It's really hard to be too definitive here because it's a relatively new problem and there's been so few cases. But I think it's fair to say that academics and even some people who you know used to be serving police officers or you know serving the intelligence agencies are concerned that we don't yet appreciate the risk of somebody who holds these beliefs acting them out and becoming violent i mean it sounds like there are a lot of questions still to be answered in this space of extremism but also in relation to this case that we've been talking about. You mentioned earlier that there will be an inquest into the train's deaths. What are some of the questions that still need to be answered there? We can expect the inquest to look at everything from when Nathaniel tried to cross over the border into New South Wales to when he was reported missing to that first incident of the officers arriving at the house to what happened in the firefight afterwards, whether that was proportionate, whether there was an opportunity for the trains to surrender. And obviously the coroner's role here is to examine why the deaths occurred and and whether there's any sort of lessons to prevent similar deaths happening again. But the key question that is certainly emerging and, and that I'd expect would be fairly central to the inquest is about the level of threat posed to those police officers entering the property that day. What was known about Gareth, Stacey and Nathaniel before police arrived that day, whether more should have been known and, you know, whether there's an opportunity for greater information sharing between some intelligence agencies and local police, whether there needs to be a better understanding of when those sort of posts and that sort of presence online becomes dangerous. Amid all of the media speculation and the police's ongoing investigation, Madeline is also trying to grieve her three parents. How is she coping with all of this? I feel like she's holding things together okay. You know, she's she's very open about the fact that she has struggled with her mental health and she's certainly not shying away from what her parents did, which she calls an evil act. Human beings are the most awful and beautiful creations on this earth. They have the potential for great good and great evil and everyone makes their own choices. And the last action of like 40-something chapters of their life was definitely evil. But she, of course, still does have positive memories of her parents. 
but prior to every other chapter, they did the most good they had to say what they were capable of doing, even having experienced their own trauma. So before Madeline had to go, I asked her, you know, there's been so much written about your parents, but we still don't have a clear picture of who they are or why they committed these crimes. And so I asked how she'd like to remember them. She said she really doesn't have the words, but there's a poem that comes to mind. It's called Auguries of Innocence by William Blake. It starts like this. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. A robin redbreast in a cage, what's all heaven in a rage? A dove house filled with doves and pigeons, shudders held through all its regions. It is right, it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. Every night and every morn, some to misery are born. Every morn and every night, some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to endless night. That was Madeline Train. Nino Bucci is a reporter for Guardian Australia. For more of his conversation with Madeline Train, you can read his article called We Ambilla Shootings, Killer's Daughter Speaks About Their Descent Into World of Conspiracies. We'll post a link to this on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert, Ellen Leibeter, Camilla Hannon, who also did the sound design and mixing, and myself. The executive producer on this episode was Molly Glassy. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. <laughs>